Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. Uh, Leviticus, hasn't this been an incredible series? Hey? Um, it's like a full course meal. It's like a seven colors meal. You know those seven color, colors meals? You've got, you've got everything on that plate. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been eating our vegetables. We've been eating our potatoes. We've climbed into some meat last week. And I said to Rex, are you going to leave anything for me when I come and preach? And so I feel, you know, at the end of a meal, you've got that bone that's left on the plate. that has got that like black burnt, really nice piece of stuff there. And like you, you're almost full, but you've got space for a little bit more. Or the marrow, you're going to suck that marrow out of it, you're going to clean that, but you know what I'm talking about, hey? That's what we're doing today, we're doing uh, finger licking kind of uh, wonderful stuff, but we are not done because, you know, after seven course, seven colors, you've got dessert and we've got pudding coming in the next two weeks, so, but today we're doing the finger licking uh, of, of Leviticus, it's been such a rich, such a rich uh, series. So, uh, Tony Bill, Billy Moore, Tony Billy Moore, I'm so glad I'm getting European names wrong also, right? So Tony Billy Moore, age 56, was one of Britain's most experienced transatlantic yachtsmen. He was, um, he was participating in a global yacht competition. So they're on these 60-foot yachts, it's one sailor, they're doing their stuff, it's in the South, uh, Southern Ocean, and um, his yacht capsizes. Uh, in the middle of the ocean, thousands of miles away from anything. And he ends up in the inside of his boat. It's upside down. So I want you to imagine he's in the upside down boat, uh, 50 foot waves that are taking him through to and fro. Um, he's gasping for air. He's got very little uh, food around. He's, he's getting seasick from being thrown around, probably in darkness. And in this craziness, in this discomfort, he prays and says, God, won't you rescue me? It was the Royal Australian Navy that came to his rescue. With modern satellite surveillance technology, they were able to pinpoint his position and come to rescue him. So four days later, at the top of his, uh, at the bottom, but now the top of his upside down boat, there's a knock at the door, or the knock at the bow, and he was rescued. And he says that when I was rescued, it felt like I was born again, like I felt like a new man, that I've been given a new lease on life. And in the same way that this guy needed to be rescued in the middle of the ocean, I want to say that me and you, in this upside down world that we live in, we require to be rescued. And it's because of God's great love and mercy that he comes to rescue us. Now, it took days of planning, it took days of preparation for the Australian uh, Royal Navy to plan this rescue. I want to say that the rescue of me and you also took planning, also took uh, preparation, also took like strategic positioning around that. And we have been unpacking that rescue plan for the last couple of weeks. The book of Leviticus is talking about God's great rescue plan for us. 
Now, I don't know, when you hear about these big rescue plans, they normally come with a name, right? So it's either a military operation or it's some kind of thing. So I don't know if you've heard of Operation Overlord or Operation Desert Storm or Operation Wrath of God. I have no, I didn't even want to Google what the Wrath of God operation was. And then there was Operation Fastbait and Operation Maibuye. I don't know if anybody remembers some of these operations, right? And so today, I want to talk about Operation atonement, right? We're going to look at what Operation Atonement is, um, and Leviticus in many ways is the blueprint for this. And so Lareko preached such a great uh, sermon last week on Leviticus 23, I couldn't let it go. So we're going back to Leviticus 23, just to pick up where you left off, because you, you were on fire last week, so I'm just like picking up where you left off. You know, licking the fingers from a great meal that we had. Lord, and so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation, which means a mass gathering, like we have in now, maybe even bigger than this. Um, You shall affect your souls. An offering shall be made of fire to the Lord, and you shall do no work on the same day. For this is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you on behalf of the Lord your God. The the day of atonement sets the backdrop for the ultimate atonement, the work on the cross. Peter writes that God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice atonement in Hebrews, uh, in in Romans 3.25. In Hebrews 2.17, it talks about Jesus that he had to be made fully human in every way in order that we might have the merciful, faithful high priest in service of God that he may make atonement for the sins of his people. And so the Day of Atonement was not a celebration. The Day of Atonement was an affliction. It was a time for humble recognition of the sins and the need to be rescued, the need for atonement. And so Leviticus 16 unpacks what needed to happen on the day of atonement. And so what we are going to do in the short time that we're together this afternoon or this morning is to say, what is the need for the rescue? What was the rescue plan? And the dangerous good presence of the Lord. God made a good world. In Genesis, we see that he made an incredibly good world. Every time he made something, he said it was good. And God's original plan for you and I was to partner in him in this good world, to manage this good world and engage in this good world. But through folly and ignorance, we introduced death into this good world. We introduced something that was not good any longer. And so Leviticus 16, uh, 23, talks about what we introduced What Adam and Eve introduced when they started to sin in the garden. And part of the day of atonement was for the high priest to confess the sins of Israel. And so the sins, and and so this is what Aaron, the high priest, would do. And so Aaron shall take both, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put it on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man in its readiness. I hope I read that correctly. Um, And so... It's interesting that the priest confesses these three sins, sins, iniquities, transgressions, 
which tells us the heavy burden that was laid on people around this. It wasn't a light moment in the people of Israel. The Day of Atonement wasn't just something that happened and we just moved on. It was like really, really important. And what is interesting for me is that he uses the triple words for sin. So which is telling me that there's something significant about the sin that gets carried around that. And so I wanted to unpack each of these words, sin, in, in, uh, in transgressions and iniquities. So sin, katar, which means to miss the goal. In Judges 20.16, we learn that a slingshot who was successful in hitting the mark does not katar, does not miss the target. And so if sin is missing the target, what was the target? When God created humanity, we read in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, and everything that is creeping in it on the earth. So when God created us in his image, he is suggesting that we are spiritual beings and that we are to love him and he loves us. And so our first call, our first target is to love God. But then when we look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their relationship, it hints that we should be loving one another as our Heavenly Father loves each other up there, right? And so that's the second thing. The second goal is for us to love one another. The New Testament, Jesus re reaffirms this in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 39. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourselves. And so our primary goal as humans is to love God, love one another, and love all creation and be custodians over creation. We, we don't have to go far. You just have to go onto Twitter, any kind of social media platform. We just need to open a newspaper or read the news, and we will see how we've missed the mark every single time. In fact, in Romans 3.23, it's a reminder that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, the World Cup was recent. You know, and some of those matches were those, those draw matches where they had to go and do penalties. You know, and the coach chooses. And then we all know, we start shouting at the TV when the coach chooses the wrong player. Like, we know that person's going to miss the goal. Like, Mara, why did you choose that guy, right? We're that person. Whenever God chooses us, we will miss the goal. And so if you're sitting here saying, I never, I'm telling you, you have. We have missed the goal. The second one he talks about is iniquities, which is Avon, destroying what is good or distorting what is good. Avon refers to something that should be straight or level and is used to describe somebody that is twisted morality, that has crooked kind of ways of engaging with each other and is bent out of shape. It's the Ten Commandment kind of stuff, right? Lying, murder, occult, uh, adultery. Jeremiah 3.21 speaks about Israel's sons have perverted the way and have forgotten their God. Or Job 33.27, I have sinned and perverted what was right. Avon is distorting what is otherwise good and beautiful. How I can mention many things, but maybe two things that come to mind. How we've distorted the image of God. We, we see God as waiting around the corner to catch you out and punish you for the bad things that you've done. Um, we see God as, Rex, I don't know if this ever happens to you, you know, uh, people don't know even how to refer to God. So they say, hey, do you have a direct line with the guy upstairs, the man upstairs? Like they don't know how to, 
the big guy, right? Um, have you, so when we talk about God like the big guy upstairs, it distorts our image of that God has special people that do special things for him, and the rest of us need to go through those people, right? That um, this is an unpath- uns- unspath- oh, English is gone already, and it's only the second service. Um, uh, emotionally distant God, a cold God, somebody that has preferential treatment on others. Another distortment of God is that he's a sugar daddy God, you know? We can just come to him whenever we need something. Other than that, we put him away. It's like an ATM God, you know? Um, and uh, somebody was telling me this week, the kids, they need to understand, the kids need to understand, the ATM doesn't just give money. You need to put money in there. And sometimes we think God is just that ATM. We can make withdrawals. Or that we've distorted the image of God that he's the, any type of life kind of God, right? Your best life kind of God, that he can just, you know, show up and do whatever we want. And so another area that we've distorted, that something that was good, that should, should, should be beautiful, is we've distorted the sanctuary of marriage, right? People say, hey, how's your ch- ball and chain? You know, somehow when you got married, you're now like in prison, like you're imprisoned, right? Um, we make these loose kind of things that, uh, at these... The, these, these uh, bachelor parties and hen parties, your last night of freedom, enjoy it while you can, right? And we make this like distorted view that we're going into some kind of prison when we go into marriage, right? And so we distort the sanctity of what marriage is. We're getting people beginning to celebrate their divorce. Like they have a divorce and say, come and celebrate, I'm finally free. Because we have distorted what God has meant for marriage. Just this week, I don't know if you read about this woman that has asked for a refund from her photographer. Um, the photographer took these wonderful photos. She wrote an email. I know she WhatsApped the photographer saying, can I have my money back? I have no need for those photos any longer. And I was like, oh boy, where are we going with this stuff, right? And so we have distorted what God had intended for good as bad. That is Avon, iniquity. But this Avon also refers to how sin affects us, the burden of sin. And so in Psalms 38 verses 4 to 6, my iniquities have gone over my head. They are a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I'm mourning. This idea that the sin becomes a heavy burden for us to carry. And we cannot walk up straight. We cannot engage with our heads up high. The third one that the priest confesses is this idea of, have I lost my driver's license again? They've taken my driver's license away again. I don't know if I'm like, oh, there I am. Thanks. We'll come back to this. It's a part of the talk, I think, or the, well, the preach. So let's go. So transgressions talks about pasha, uh, violating trust. Pesha talks about betrayal of relationships, normally used in reference between nations when they have treaties with each other. And when one nation breaks that treaty, they pasha, they break the trust that's engaged in that. It also refers to people breaking trust with one another. So if I was to go on holiday and I come into my house and somebody's broken into my house, that is robbery. But if I find out that my neighbor was the thief, it's called pasha. Right? Because my na- like I'm not expecting my neighbor to break into me. They have broken my trust. And so pasha is a common phrase throughout the Bible that talks about how we as humans have broken our trust between ourselves and God. 
as humanity, we have broken this relationship. In Hosea 1 verses 13, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Talking about this betrayal of trust between the people of Israel and Yahweh. Referring to worshipping other gods and violating that relationship. Pasha also is associated with ignoring, mitigating, making people from poor communities and vulnerable communities sidelined to not take care of the needy amongst us. In Amos 2, 6 verses 1, it says, Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Can you believe that? That they would sell another human being for a pair of sandals. Amos 1.13 talks about, Because they have ripped open pregnant women in Galel, and that they might enlarge their territories. And so we put down the poor. We build up walls to keep people out so that our nation can become richer, so that we can secure economic freedom for ourselves. And we ignore everybody else in that. That is Pasha, because we are breaking down the violation of what God intended for us to engage with one another. And so the New Testament, Paul speaks about us as being trust breakers. We make trust between ourselves. We make trust between God. And so all the sin, this iniquity and transition and, and, and transgression leads us, um, leads us to a place of violence, separation, death, and it reduces us to a place where we need a rescue plan. And so we need to be rescued from this. And so the rescue plan, Operation Atonement. An Operation Atonement in 1 John 2, verses 2 and 1. My dear children, I write this to you, so that you will not sin, but that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and will not only, not only for ours, but for all who have sinned in the whole world. I added a word there. I hope I don't go to hell for that. Rex, am I okay with adding a little word there? So, no coffee for me after the service. Right? So, when I was given this topic of atonement, I was like, what have you done to me? Why did you give me this hospital pass? Right? Like, I was looking forward to the day of Sabbath, uh, like one of those kind of things. And, I got, and the first thing when I started researching this, I realized this word atonement has got some controversy within the church space because some people say there's atonement for a limited amount of people. And some scriptures and some theologians say, no, atonement is for everybody. And I didn't want to go into that in the short time that I have up here. So if you want to go into that, please come to Bible school, go to a Bible study, figure it out there, because we're not going to talk about it over here. The other thing is like, the word atonement, when last did you use it in a casual conversation? Like, yeah, atonement. We don't use it. Have you used it? It's not even words we use in the boardroom. It's not the kind of words I use when I arrive home and my kids see me. We're not used. Like, have you used atonement this week at all, like in casual conversation? Hmm? You did. I praise the Lord. At least one of us are, are doing it, right? Um, but, but I'm almost certain every sermon that we've done in the book of Leviticus, we've used this word of atonement, right? And so what does it mean? And how do we begin to unpack it? So let's start with the English version of atonement. And it is so beautiful and simple. It is simple. It's at one mint. 
Isn't that amazing? Even people, people like me with the dyslexia can even spell this now, right? At one minute, it's amazing. It speaks of two parties that had something wrong with them and now need to get together. At one minute, bringing these two groups of people together. So when trust has been violated, at one minute. Destroying what was good in this relationship, at one minute. Missing the goal of the relationship, at one minute. And so this at one minute repairs the relationship, but it also reconciles the relationship. So that's the English word, the Hebrew word. I'm so glad you're back. Where are you? Yeah, you're back. I'm so excited that you're back uh, for a second portion. You know, at least somebody's with me in the sermon. I don't know about the rest of you. I've got one guy that's with me. Double portion. Come tonight, 7 o'clock. We're going to rock with you um, tonight. Yeah, we're going to rock tonight with you in the, just uh, as long as you don't consume much more than you've already consumed uh, this morning. So, no, let's go. So, you've got the, you've got the English word. And then you've got the, the Hebrew word, which is kapar, uh, the day of kapur, Yom Kippur. I said it incorrectly. I said it like a mlungu again, hey? Kapur. It's Yom Kippur, right? Yom Kippur. Yeah, these words, right? But in essence, Yom Kippur, or kapur, in, translated into English, means to cover. Oh, I've gone back a little. Um, it means to cover. So if me and Rex go for uh, a coffee one day, right? And while we're having this coffee together, and, and it's a nice coffee because we're up at Motherland, it's the mother cuppa, so it's the big thing, and I've ordered like a cheese or a chocolate, double chocolate, a croissant. So I'm going to town a little bit, not too much, just a little bit, big stuff. And we're busy meeting, and we're talking about how the sermon went, and you know how I handled certain things. And, and I realized, oh, hey man, I forgot my wallet. So I say, Rex, I'm so sorry, I forgot my warrant. And Rex is like, this is really disappointing as a senior leader in the church, like somebody that I respect, to leave your wallet when you come to this. And we have a bit of a negotiation, we talk. He says, but you know what? I've got you covered. And it's nice that a black guy is covering for a white guy for a change, right? And so he says, Quentin, I forgive you. I forgive you for not like bringing your wallet and stuff. And then we continue meeting. And then when we come into an end, the waiter comes and brings the bill. And Rex says, no, don't, don't, don't worry. You know, Quinton was a little bit irresponsible this morning, but he left his wallet behind, and we had a conversation, and I forgave him. The waiter says, that's amazing. That's really good for you. Who's going to pay the bill? Right? And that's what, like, who's going to pay the bill? Somebody has to pay the bill. Because when I've broken relationship, I've created a debt. Right? And somebody needs to pay the bill. When we've broken our relationship with God, somebody needs to pay the bill for that. And that's what atonement is. It requires a forgiveness. is an act that requires a cost to be paid. And so in this relationship, either Rex has to cover the cost, or I need to say, I'm going to go wash dishes in the back. I need, to, like, I need to do something to repair for this relationship. Or you're going to cover it. But somebody has to cover the cost. And I think within our church circles, we overlook that too quickly. Just say, forgive me, and then I move on. And I don't understand that the, de- the, the bill has to be paid. Right? That's right. It is Jesus. He's the ultimate bill payer. He's the ultimate person that pays the bill. But the atonement is like Oprah. You know Oprah, when you go to a show, she says, and there's more. 
right? Because what is more about this is that if me and Rex meet on an ongoing basis, like over the next couple of weeks, we meet every time. And you know what? Every time I don't bring my wallet, what does he start saying? Ah, this guy is taking advantage of me now. Right, this guy's um, he's disrespecting this relationship. You know those people when you arrive at church, you say, yo, I'm going through the other exit when I see them, right? Because what I've been doing to him, I've been muddying the relationship. I've been creating toxicity in the air between us. And so what atonement does, it doesn't only say that I've paid the price, it starts cleaning the air between us so that we can engage with one another. And so the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus does both. It pays the bill, but it also restores the damage within that relationship. And it's his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Leviticus 16 is the foreshadowing of the ultimate um, atonement. Now, Leviticus 16 is really, really interesting. If you've been following with us, it's in the center of the book of Leviticus, but Leviticus is in the center of the Torah. And so this is like the bull's eye. It is pointing to something. So if you do your master's in theology, you will learn about this word called chiasm. And chiasm is a sentence or a phrase where the second part mirrors the first part. Right? And what this helped was, if you were a young person learning the Torah, if you used the chiasm, it would help you remember the, uh, the Torah. Right? The second thing that it does it helps you to understand that there's something hidden in the text. There's a treasure for us to go after. And so the chiasm, for example, is the Sabbath was not made for man. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man made for the Sabbath. Can you see Sabbath, Sabbath, man? It's leading us to somewhere. Bullseye, bullseye, you're with me. Praise the Lord. If we look at the, the story of the Tower of Babel, the story of Babel starts with something, it ends very similar, and it builds towards something. The book of Leviticus is a chasm. Uh, when you look at Gen uh, um, Genesis and the last book of the Torah, why have I forgotten it? Deuteronomy, very similar in its makeup. If you look at Exodus and Numbers, very similar in its makeup. And then you have Leviticus in the middle. And then the book of Leviticus, the beginning of Leviticus is very similar to the end of Leviticus. And they're all building towards Leviticus 16. So the question I have, what is so important in Leviticus 16? What do we need to discover in the book of Leviticus chapter 16? It's the ultimate atonement. Leviticus 16, when you read it, the gospel is everywhere in the book of Leviticus, particularly uh, uh, Leviticus 16. So I'm going to go through some points through Leviticus 16 fairly quickly, but just seeing how Leviticus 16 points to the work of the ultimate um, uh, atonement. The high priest performs rituals, purifications, including bathing and dressing in special uh, clothing. This is Leviticus 16. So up until this point, the priest was dressed in very royal outfit. But for the Day of Atonement, he gets out of that and dresses very humbly in that. And that points to Jesus as a, sin, as a sinless high priest who was pure without sin in, in Hebrews 
The high priest had two male goats for an, um, a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. That's Leviticus 16.5. Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice sin for humanity, John 1.29. The high priest cast lots to determine which goat should be sacrificed and which goat should become the, a scapegoat. Leviticus 17.8-10. Uh, Jesus was chosen by God to be the sacrificial lamb also bore the sins of humanity as an escape gold goat. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. And then the high priest in Leviticus um, 17, uh, 16, why am I saying 17? 16. Uh, is it 16? It is 16, eh? 16, 15 to 19. The high priest sacrifices the chosen, the chosen by the lot of an offering and sprinkles the blood in the most high places and places the blood on the horns of the golden altar. In Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, Jesus shed his blood on the cross to provide atonement for the sin of humanity and granting access to the presence of God. Leviticus 16, 29, 12 to 13, the high priest enters the holy place with incense and creating a cloud over the Ark of the Covenant and offers prayers forgiveness on behalf of the people. Hebrews 7, 25, Jesus is a high priest intercessing with the Father, making atonement uh, for us. The symbols of the cross are everywhere within Leviticus 16. And it's, there's nothing in Leviticus 16. It's even the movement of the high priest. Because when Adam and Eve left Eden, they were left Eden on the east. The angel was put with swords on the east of the, of the garden. When the priest goes into the presence of the Holy of Holies, he's moving from west to east. He's entering in. And so even the direction of the priest is talking about going back to the presence of where God is. The high priest on the high place sprinkles blood on the offering of the goat chosen as a scapegoat. Jesus in John 1, 2, 2. Jesus sacrificed on the cross and people provided cleanseness and forgiveness of sin. If you go through Leviticus 16, you will see the cross in almost every single verse. It is pointing to the ultimate atonement. The first goat is a picture of how atonement was granted. Sin, forgiveness of sin, and its punishment. And that was the first goat. It had to be killed. That is how we get atonement. The second goat represents a picture of the effect of atonement. The penalty of sin was cast on this goat and left. Remember, this is a big gathering of people. It's not an individual person in the auditorium. It's a, it's a big gathering. So everybody sees this scapegoat leaving. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that is telling people your sins are getting smaller and smaller until it becomes a pinprick and then drops off, never to be seen again. That is the symbol of that scapegoat. You can go over it over and over again. And so all of this is happening in Leviticus 16. What is it for? Why? It grants us access. It grants us access to the presence of God. In Matthew 27, 51, at that moment, the temple, the, the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, which then gives us access to the dangerous, good presence of the Lord. I don't know if we need to have atonement between me and the sound desk. Oh, there we go. Atonement has happened. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Right? The, the atonement is that for us. And sometimes we take God's presence for granted. 
right? In Leviticus 16, 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any point into my holiness. Place inside the veil before the mercy seat on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear on a cloud over the mercy seat. And so this is a reminder to me and you. Though God's presence is good, it is dangerous. And we need to take heed about how we come into the presence of God and the cost that it costs that me and you can experience the, the way we do this day. And so Aaron's sons were killed in that holy of holiness because they took it for granted and how they should come in there. They did it their own way. They brought their own way of lighting that fuel. And they died in the presence of God. You have Moses who has this really intimate relationship with God. And through this intimate relationship with God, he says, can I see your face? What does God say to him? You can't see my face. I've got to hide you in a cliff so that when I pass you, you do not die. When Jesus takes Peter and James up onto the mountain of transfiguration, what is their response when they see the full presence of God? They fall down and they are afraid. Jesus needs to remind them, don't be afraid. And they are completely transformed through that experience. How many of us are transformed through our experience this morning? How many of us are walking out of here because we had the full experience of God? Or are we like Aaron's sons that are just coming in here haphazardly because we just want to? You have Uzzah in the Old Testament that thinks he's helping the Ark of the Covenant. He touches it. He dies on the spot. I'm reminding you that the presence of God is dangerous. When Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, what is his response? It's one of being afraid. And Jesus saying to him, he fell to the ground. How many of us fall to the ground in the presence of God? When John meets the resurrected Jesus, in Revelations 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though I was dead. How many of us are doing that? God's presence is dangerous, but it is good. How are we responding to the presence of God in our lives? I love this, uh, C.S. Lewis, the lion and the witch and the wardrobe. And Susan and Lucy are asking about Aslan, who represents Jesus in this book. And they say, is he safe? And the beaver replies, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. We do not serve a safe, mamby-pamby God. We serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is good. And we would take heed to take that seriously this morning. Put it this way. Um, if you put 50 cents in your pocket, anybody have 50 cents in your pocket? How do you walk with 50 cents in your pocket? You don't even know that it's there, right? It's like if you lost it, like you were, you're not going to at the end of the day. Oh, let, me, let me put this as a provisor. Not all of us. There are some of us in the congregation. Hey, that 50 cents, we know. But for most of us, I guarantee you, you haven't missed the 50 cents that you had yesterday. Like you, you didn't make an account, where's that 50 cents? You're not turning your house upside down today for that 50 cents, for some of us, right? So there's a difference between 50 cents versus, you know those people that walk with Goomba pockets? With 50K. How do you walk with 50,000 in your pocket? You know when your pocket is bulging like this. You walk carefully, hey? You're watching who's watching you. And then every five minutes you check. I saw that. You're counting it. 
You walk very carefully with that, right? Because, hey, it's 50K. It's not 50 cents. How many of us walk with the presence of God like it's just 50 cents? Right? Just blatant. We won't even know if it's not there. Right? I think that when we leave here, we should be walking with 50K of presence, knowing that it matters for us. And this is where it comes to. Up until Jesus, the need for God's presence required us to be purified, something to be slaughtered. We had to go to this day of atonement. Up until Jesus, the focus was on the temple. Everything was focused on the temple. My whole life as an Israelite was focused on the temple. And if I touched something unclean, I would become ceremonially unclean, and I would have to go and do something to become clean. But when Jesus shows up, it was the other way around. When he touched unclean stuff, it became clean, right? He made it sanctified. We see it in Isaiah 6, 5. And this is how Isaiah enters into the presence of God. He says, woe is me for I am, I am lost. I am a man with unclean lips and I dwell amongst people with unclean lips. It's us. We are unclean. We've got, un we're unclean. We've got unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can you see the fear, the awe that is approached to God? And then a seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal. And he took the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, I have touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. That is the work of Jesus. So this morning as we sit in here, that presence of God has come upon us. Our sins have been atoned for. Right? But that's not for you. Come in here to this place to experience God's worship and His presence is not for you and it's not for you, you, me or you. We come here for a deeper purpose because Jesus has called us to be His disciples, which means that when we walk out those doors, we do not become ceremonially unclean when we touch others. When we touch an unclean world, we make that world clean. Right? That means that when we go into our boardrooms tomorrow and there are crooked deals, those Avons that are happening there, we walk upright and we bring God's sanctity and holiness into those spaces. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 47. Remember the uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel standing at the presence and he sees a river flowing out of the presence, out of the temple, and it goes deeper and deeper. And as that river goes, life springs from that temple. When we leave this place, that river flows out of this place. The focus isn't here. We don't come here just for ourselves. We come here so that God's living waters leave this place, so that we change the world, that we become true living waters, that we are the living waters that Ezekiel speaks about. We are Leviticus 16. We are that atonement. And we thank God that we can experience his presence. We all need rescuing. We have all sinned. That atonement, that rescue plan is for each and every one of us. And that rescue plan gives us access to something that nobody else can give us access to. And that's the presence and the holy presence of God. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you this morning that you, 
are the ultimate atonement, that you have done an incredible work for us this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for that incredible atonement. We thank you, Lord, that this morning you're reminding us of our sin in our lives, how we have missed the mark, how we have broken trust with people in the space, how we've broken trust with you. Father, we recognize how we have distorted what you have created. And we thank you for your great rescue plan, for ultimate atonement, that we can come into your presence. And thank you, Lord, uh, for that. We thank you, Jesus, that you are an incredible Savior.